been sharing with you part one last week of a message that I've titled, The One We've Been Waiting For. We're in Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, find your way to Luke chapter 7. We'll be picking up and revisiting verses 18 and beyond and adding a little bit to that here in just a little bit. But have you folks ever noticed how some folks get the idea that when you become a Christian, you check your brain at the door? I mean, some individuals talk as though Christians and churches ultimately have this big basket at the door, right? When we come to our worship hour, we're dropping our brains off there at the door. And we come in and we, you know, in all matters of faith, we are exercising something that does not require our intellectual thought, does not require us to think or to have critical reasoning about what we're talking about. But it's not that those individuals don't expect us to be rational in other places. In other ways, it's, it's like there's this sign here as you come through the doors that says, check your brain here, but, but on the way out, you know, remember to gather your brain so that you won't lose your mind, right? There's this sort of mentality amongst much of our society that Christians have somehow given up their reason when it comes to matters of faith. And some individuals think that to be Christian is to give mindless acceptance to lofty ideals that have no evidence or to take ownership of teachings which cannot be questioned. But the Bible never calls for us to take hold of that which cannot be questioned or that which cannot be investigated based on real evidence. We're never called to check our brains at the door. On the contrary, one of the most stellar examples of people who came to faith in Christ in the new church, in the New Testament, at the town known as Berea, the city of Berea, gives us an exemplary list of individuals who come to faith. And as they come to faith, through the ministry of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 17, we read some interesting things about how they respond in the midst of what they have heard. They are Jews. They're gathering together in a synagogue, and Paul and Silas come and speak this word of hope, this word of the gospel to them. And we read in Acts 17.10 that when Paul and Silas arrived in Berea, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, the book of Acts tells us, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And then we see the outcome of that. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. You see, here's a church that did not check its brain at the door. It's a church that sprang forth from a Jewish synagogue. The Jews were longing for the promised Messiah, this expected one we talked about last week. And really, all of humanity is longing for this expected one. Even from the fall of mankind, there is this promise that one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And all of mankind has been looking for this one. But the Jews have been chosen by God as his special people, as his avenue through whom this expected one, this Messiah, this anointed king, this rescuer, this savior would come. 
And so they were expecting one who would come and fulfill God's promises. That a descendant of King David, that a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of these lines would usher in God's promised kingdom reign. So when the Jews who were there at Berea heard the news that this Messiah had come, they didn't check their brains at the door. They were eager to examine the scriptures daily, verifying the claims of their visiting preachers. And in their investigation, as they put their brains to use, they progressed toward a confident faith. And so last week, we began our encounter with a man named John the Baptist. And this is a man who did not check his brain at the door. Now, he had quite a ministry. It was a ministry like no other in his day. It was a God-ordained ministry that included an appearance of angels to proclaim his coming miraculous birth to his elderly parents. That's what we found back when we started around Christmas of last year, Luke chapter 1. It was a ministry that caused God's spirit to be upon him even from his mother's womb. It was a ministry that drew crowds into the wilderness of all places to hear a preacher crying out condemnation to those who had sinned and calling for them to repent and baptizing them in the Jordan River. It was a ministry which ultimately had this revelation from God as to who the Messiah would be, who the actual expected one was, such that John the Baptist was able to say as Jesus came to him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a pretty awesome sort of ministry to be given, is it not? And John was able to see the Spirit descending on Jesus as a dove and proclaiming that this is my beloved Son. John had a pretty awesome sort of ministry. And this ministry drew individuals from near and far. I think the greatest modern parallel that we might have of a ministry like this would be the ministry of Billy Graham. Billy Graham would preach crusades and people would come from all around to gather. And John the Baptist's ministry must have been like that because we read later in the book of Acts that even after Jesus has gone to the cross, even after all the news that had spread about him as individuals had found out about all the things that he had done, even after that, as Paul and his fellow missionaries are out, they encounter some individuals who have heard of the baptism of John but have not heard of the baptism of Jesus. His ministry had been so prominent, had spread to such a wide range that there were individuals who were still holdouts from that ministry who had not yet heard the good news of the gospel. But things didn't pan out quite as John had expected in the midst of this most notable sort of ministries. He was a man who was relaying God's word that had been revealed to him. But God had not revealed everything to John the Baptist. So he still had to kind of put the pieces together of what he knew in order to understand what was happening in God's great scheme of things with all the things that he was facing in his own life. And so he pointed others to Jesus, but ultimately he's still just a fallible man. He's still just a man who is like you and I, without omniscience, without all-knowing of all the knowledge that God would ever reveal. And he's putting the pieces together. And some of the pieces that John the Baptist was working with included the fact that he, as God's 
chosen representative to usher in the Messiah had been locked away in prison by a wicked king. And surely John thought, well, if I'm serving God, he's going to keep me out of circumstances like this. And this prophet who had pointed others to the Messiah was now held captive in a dungeon. And surely he began to question his own understanding. Had he done something wrong? Was God upset with him? Was was Jesus the one that everyone was now calling a prophet? Was Jesus the one he had been waiting for? And that's the question we began to investigate last week. It's an important question that Luke draws our attention to by really repeating this question twice as we get into the verses that we looked at last week and that we'll look at again here today. Because it's an important question that each one of us must consider. It's an important question that Luke wants you to know you need to consider here today. And the question is this, is Jesus the one we've been waiting for? And friend, maybe you're here and you're in the midst of some trial in life. Maybe things in your life haven't panned out quite like you thought they would. Maybe the life you thought God was calling you to live hasn't solved the problems that you thought it was going to solve. Or maybe you're just curious about the claims of Jesus. And so you're asking, is this the one we've been waiting for? And that's an important question. I'm glad you're asking that question. If you are asking that question. Because God's word doesn't leave us in the dark when it comes to this question. And Luke shows us that this is an important question to ask. So let's reread our text from last week to set the stage. And then we'll add to it the verses that we're going to consider in more detail here today. So join me now in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18. If you're able, I would ask that we could honor God's word and the reading of God's word together by standing as we read now. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, here's that question repeated so that Luke draws our attention to it. John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf Here, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. 
This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, We play the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. You may be seated. In these verses, John asks that all-important question that I hope you either have in the past or are presently giving your earnest consideration to. Are you the expected one, Jesus? Or should we look for someone else? John is saying, Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? Are you the king who will set us free? And as I began to show you last week, Jesus gives a clear answer to this question. The one we've been waiting for has come. Jesus is the one that you have been waiting for, my friends. And the question now is, are you willing to put your brain to work in considering this question of whether or not Jesus is the one you've been waiting for? Well, today we're going to continue our exploration of five expectations that we have concerning the one we've been waiting for and how Jesus meets those expectations. That's what we find in Luke chapter 7 in verses 18 to 35. So we began last week by considering, first of all, how we've been waiting for one who can answer our questions questions one thing that's clear about john the baptist in this passage is that he knew who he could take his questions to he took them directly to jesus what he had encountered in the facts of what jesus had done here on earth was enough for him to trust jesus to answer the things that he hadn't yet quite worked out in his mind he trusted jesus to tell him the truth he even called jesus the lord as he sent his disciples to jesus And so it's apparent to me that John saw Jesus as his master who could answer his questions. And as we discussed last week, Jesus didn't get upset with John. Jesus didn't say, how dare you question what I am doing? How dare you use your brain to examine your faith? No, those were not the words of Jesus. Jesus welcomed the questions of John and he moved in a mighty way to answer those questions. And I just want to remind you that Jesus deals in truth that can withstand our questions. Your questions cannot defeat God's truth. And so you should feel safe to examine the substance of your faith. Don't let hidden doubts keep you from earnest faith. Because God's truth can withstand your questions. 
And we've been waiting for the one who can answer our questions. And Jesus is that one. That's the first expectation we saw last week about the one we've been waiting for. The second was this. We've been waiting for the one who can set us free. Last week, we also saw how Jesus answered John's questions with these miracles that fulfilled prophecies. There were two prophecies from Isaiah in particular. But one of those prophecies that Jesus told John's disciples to take back to him and to say, give a report on what I've done in fulfilling this promise, one of those was a promise that the expected one would set prisoners free and proclaim liberty to the captives. That was the context of this passage in Isaiah where Jesus doesn't specifically state those words, but he fulfills the remainder of that prophecy and what he does there before John's captive audience of two witnesses. And what Jesus is essentially saying to John in these moments is, look at the things that I am showing you that I can do. And trust me in the things that you have not yet seen me do. Because what John wanted, John's in a dungeon at this moment. John wanted to be set free. And what Jesus didn't proclaim as he fulfilled these prophecies from Isaiah is he did not say the peace where ultimately this Messiah, this expected one, would set free the captives. He would proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And as this word comes back to John and as he hears of what Jesus has done, I'm sure John, being the Bible scholar that he was, would remember what it was that God had promised this Messiah would do in setting the captives free. That's what he wanted. And yet he came to realize in this moment that Jesus was doing something greater than he could have imagined. Ultimately, Jesus did set the captives free free my friends we have found freedom in christ from every bondage we have found freedom from the bondage to our flesh the bondage to sin the bondage to the grave christ has conquered every one of those he is the expected one the one we've been waiting for who can set us free this gets us into new material here we're up to number three here we've been waiting for the one the prophets foretold You see, my friends, all of history is headed somewhere. God isn't just haphazardly throwing together promises as they seem appropriate. His plans have been established, and they will continue to come to pass as he formerly conveyed those plans to his people through his prophets. He has now conveyed those through his son. You see, before Christ came, a prophet was simply someone who fulfilled an office, someone who carried out a role. They were called and gifted by God to convey God's messages to God's people. According to Hebrews 1.1, in the days before Christ came, God spoke to people through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. And John the Baptist was the final one of these Old Testament prophets. These individuals who would come and proclaim what God was doing in bringing the Messiah to them. As the author of Hebrews would explain for us in chapter 1, verse 2, In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So John the Baptist, as the forerunner of Jesus, the last one to proclaim this message, Jesus comes and now Those Old Testament prophets have fulfilled their role because the expected one 
has come. And I just want to say, we have a greater revelation from God's own Son, which reveals to us the heart of God from the lips of the one who was the instrument of God's creative work in the world. My friends, we are so blessed to have what we have. This is a great honor that grants us a privilege that the people of the Old Testament so longed for. And are we taking that for granted? God's given us a greater word. The prophets and the angels longed for this word. Friends, do you you have a dusty Bible in your house? Do do you have a Bible that's just been collecting dust on your shelf? Then, friends, I want you to know you've got a buried treasure. Because God has granted us rich blessings in his word. You see, if John simply had a copy of your Bible, his questions would have been answered. And yet we have the Bible, but we would rather chew on our questions alone so often instead of opening God's Word to see what it is that He is telling us about His work. But the Old Testament prophets carried out a vitally important role. They conveyed God's Word to God's people, and they called these people to turn away from their sins and to return to their Creator. And it was through the prophets that God had revealed to his people that he would one day permanently deal with their sins. And the reason they were waiting for a Messiah is because God had promised through his prophets that a Messiah would come, an anointed one, a king who would forever be their savior. Now when we come to verse 24 of Luke chapter 7, we find that the context has changed a little bit. We started out with John sending a couple of of his disciples to ask Jesus a question, but now they're leaving. Jesus isn't dealing with John's questions anymore. We read at the beginning of verse 24, the messengers of John have left. And John isn't speaking to them anymore. No, at this point, he begins to speak to the crowds, those who are gathered around to hear his teaching. And he speaks to them about John. So our subject matter still revolves around John, but we catch some insights from Jesus about John that are directed toward the crowds now rather than responding to the words of those who have come from John. And so Jesus knew why John's ministry had such a strong appeal. He knew why people had been flocking out to this most popular sort of ministry out in the unlikeliest of places in the wilderness. People wanted to know God's timeless truths. People wanted to hear from God. People wanted to see a message from God that wasn't just somebody putting on a show. They were used to people who could change their words to fit in with the changing winds of society. They were used to people who would say, since society says that sexual activity with someone of the same sex is okay, and that's an appropriate display of love, then surely God is okay with that. They were used to people who would say, since society says that sexual lust after those who you might see on your computer screen is in high demand and we can watch it from any device undetected, then surely God is okay with that. 
They were used to those who might say, if my political party sees those who are seeking asylum from oppressive and aggressive nations as malicious thugs, then surely God is okay with me seeing them as less worthy of food and shelter and protection than I am. Surely is okay with me treating them as though they do not bear his image. That is, you see, people were used to hearing leaders who could change their minds based on the shifting winds of the society which surrounded them. But Jesus knew that the people wanted more than someone who could tickle their ears. They wanted a word from God. So he asks the crowd this rhetorical question in verse 24. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see a reed that was shaken by the wind? Now John was surely no reed which was shaken by the wind. He spoke tough truths that called for drastic change in the lives of individuals. John wasn't about to shift his message to keep from hurting the feelings of those who needed to hear from God. Back in Luke chapter 3, we've got just a little sample of John's preaching. That's where we read. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, listen to this polite message. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones... God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees so that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, let's have an invitation, right? I mean, that's a tough message. Those are tough truths, right? John wasn't bending things to the times in which he lived. How's that for a reed shaken by the wind? He didn't take a public survey to see how well his message would be received before he conveyed it. He didn't stop and say, now, how does that make you feel? He just spoke God's truth, and then he left the results up to the source of the truth. And in contrast to what all the books on how to win friends and influence people would say would happen, people were going out to John in throngs. They were craving a word from God. And John delivered that word. People also wanted more than fashion or fame could offer. Jesus asks another rhetorical question about John in verse 25. He says, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? And then he remarks that those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. (laughs) That wasn't John. John was wearing camel hair. He lived in the wilderness. John wasn't running a fashion show with a catwalk of the latest camel creations. He wasn't running a resort where people could come out and find comfort for their cravings in the wilderness. John gave harsh preaching in a harsh environment to people who needed to understand harsh realities in their stance with God. You see, people went out into the wilderness to see John Because they wanted a word from God. They went out to see a prophet. And my friends, let me say this. We can operate a nice church with a casual, comfortable environment. And great entertainment. And trendy attire. And we can really put on a great show. But if we do not give people 
the word of God, then our ministry has missed its mark. People need to hear from God. They need to hear a message that is not altered by the public consciousness of the world around us. You need to hear the unshakable truths of God. And if anything in your life is to bend, it should be that which contradicts God and His Word, bending to meet His commands. Our God is not a whimsical fashionista who changes His message to suit the whimsical society that is changing around us. He is steadfast in His character, and we need to live by His truth. So I ask you, my friends, are you in His Word? Are you understanding His truths? Are you letting His Spirit shape you into the image of His Son such that you are growing in His likeness? Because that, my friends, is the bending that is needed. And John gave the people God's Word in a greater way than anyone before him. He had a greater revelation than any of the prophets before his time. He had been granted the identity of the true Messiah that former prophets could only dream of. That's why Jesus says in verse 16 that John is more than a prophet. He is the prophet that other prophets prophesied about. When you read the book of Malachi, this last book of the Old Testament, leading into the New Testament, we find this prophecy, the following words from the Lord. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's what Jesus alludes to in Luke chapter 7, verse 27, saying that John is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And here, as we see time and time again in God's revelation, was a promise of God that was fulfilled. John, as a prophet, was the fulfillment of a prophecy that pointed to the coming of the Messiah. And do you, friends, do do you ever wonder... Do you ever wonder, are Christians just making all of this sort of thing up? Well, look into the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Look at how God has kept his word. Prophecies that were made not by Christians, but but by Jews. In fact, I was reading just this past week that one of the chief ways that Christian Jews, those who are of a Jewish heritage who have trusted in Christ, you might call them Messianic Jews, one of the chief ways they strive to win non-Christians to Jesus is by showing them the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in their own scriptures. Many prophecies recorded by many individuals writing over a span of of thousands of years come together in the fulfillment of this one Savior. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 both come to mind as these kind of foremost sorts of evidences of this sort of prophecy. And these are used so often in the evangelism of Jews where you see so clearly in the Old Testament scriptures long before Jesus had come this promise of one who would suffer, one who would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs. 
the one who would be pierced in his hands and his feet. And Jesus crossed every T and dotted every I on these prophecies. And friends, we're not making this stuff up. Don't check your brain at the door. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. And we've been waiting for the one who the prophets foretold. Fourthly, we've been waiting for the one who can right our wrongs. Now, Jesus had a pretty high esteem of John the Baptist. How can I be sure of that? Well, in verse 28, he says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Wouldn't that be a pretty amazing thing to have the Lord to say about you? I mean, among those born of women, there is no one greater than you. Can you imagine having the Lord say that? Of all the men who's ever lived, this one is the greatest from an earthly perspective is what Jesus is saying here. And John was a great man. He refrained from wine or liquor his whole life, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 15. That's where we also read that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He preached hard truths faithfully, even when it put him in prison, even when it endangered his life. And John faithfully stewarded a greater truth than any prophet who had come before him. In fact, he was granted the insight that the other prophets longed to know. Even the angels yearned for this truth, my friends. That's what we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter writes, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, that is the Old Testament's before John, made a careful searches, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look, Peter writes there in this passage. You see, John was blessed with truths that other prophets and even angels are hankering for to know. And it would be awesome to have Jesus say to you that you are the greatest man who ever lived. But you know what? That still wouldn't be enough to get you into heaven. In fact, in the latter half of verse 28, Jesus says, He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That is, he's greater than John the Baptist. He's greater than the greatest of all men that have been born of women. That is, the least citizen of heaven is greater than the greatest citizen of earth. Why is that? Because every citizen of earth who is only a citizen of earth, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is cursed with sin. Every one of us has fallen short of God's design. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. Isaiah 64, 6, we read, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And all of us wither like a leaf. All our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And all of us are sinners. All includes me. All includes you. The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than every one of us apart from what God can do for us. 
Jesus isn't saying here that, G, that, that John is not a citizen of heaven. He's simply saying that the greatest man who ever lived doesn't measure up to what God's kingdom standard calls for from his own. The greatest man who ever lived can't measure up. And if that's the case, do you know what? Neither can you. You can't measure up either. I don't care how hard you try. I don't care how sincere you are. I don't care how well you think you've got this under control or how much your good deeds are outweighing your bad deeds. Even if you were the greatest man who ever lived apart from God's grace, you would not measure up to heaven's standards. And the response of people who hear this from Jesus as he's talking about John here in Luke 7 is an insightful one. There are really two camps of responses. Some of them hear this And they're described in verse 29 as all the people and the tax collectors. Those despised tax collectors. That's the group that Matthew came out of. You remember when we looked at Matthew, we talked about tax collectors. How they were the dregs of society. I mean, these were the thugs. They were the scum. Because ultimately, their job was to go and to extort money from their own citizens in order to give it to a foreign power. This Roman government that no one liked. And they use some pretty abusive sort of tactics to get that money out. So here we see that all the people and the tax collectors aren't even considered worthy enough by the society in that day to be considered among all the people. They were considered to be less than people. All the people and the tax collectors respond in a particular way. When when these individuals hear Jesus say that the best human can't measure up to the least citizen of heaven. They rejoice. They acknowledge God's justice. Why? Verse 29 says it's because they have been baptized with the baptism of John. Now remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People were turning away from their sins and they were acknowledging their need for forgiveness. And John's baptism was a visible cry from those who said, I need something greater than myself. And so they were longing for God's justice. And now God's justice had come. They had been waiting for the one who could right their wrongs. And now here he was in their presence. And I just want you to know that there's only one who can right your wrongs. And he has come. The one you've been waiting for has come. Jesus is the one who can right your wrongs. And the truth we ultimately come to in this passage is that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Those who have repented, those who cry out to God for mercy, are greater than those who've lived what might appear to be stellar lives here on earth. And so the question that each of us must answer then is, have you cried out for His mercy? Have you begged for His forgiveness? Have you come to acknowledge your own sins and your own abilities? And have you cried out for God's grace? Because I want to tell you, my friends, God's mercy is tempered with His grace. The fact that this one has come, this expected one, is a sign that God does not want you to be the object of his wrath forever. 
God loves you and God longs for you to be restored. God loves you so much that he sent his son to face the penalty that you deserved. He sent his son to stand in your place, the just for the unjust, that you might be reconciled to God. His love has given you what you do not deserve. And here the Pharisees and the lawyers, they show up as they so often do in Jesus' life. They're steeped in the law of Moses. They think they've got it all together. They see no need for repentance. They look to themselves and they say, I'm good enough. And so they do the worst thing we could possibly imagine in verse 30. They reject God's purposes for themselves, having not been baptized by John. They look at what they've done and they say, I'll be the judge of what's right for me. Nobody else is going to tell me what I need. And all sinner, I just want to say, don't miss God's purposes for you. Repent. Acknowledge your sin. Turn from your sin. Cling to a ready and willing to accept you Savior. This is God's purpose for you. And we've been waiting for the one who can right our wrongs. And he has come. Fifthly and finally, we've been waiting for the one who can meet us where we are and take us to where we need to be. In verses 31 to 35, Jesus talks about the men of this generation. He does that in a way a lot of us would talk about this generation as we grow more and more aware of the sin that abounds around us. We look to the world at large around us, this generation of individuals who are influencing society, all the evils that they pursue, and and we criticize this generation. And so we say, this generation has no morals. This generation has lost its ability to tell the difference between right and wrong. And Jesus says, to what shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? Just like we would say, that sort of thing. And then Jesus compares the men of this generation with children. Now, that's not the comparison that most of us men are looking for, right? If somebody's been telling you that you're acting like a child, guys, I just want you to know that's not a good thing, okay? Let me, let me fill you in on that. Somebody tells you you're acting like a child, let me clear up the confusion, not good, all right? And Jesus mentions this game that children would play in his day. It's something kind of like Simon Says, where one child would pretend to do one thing and then, and then expect the other children, his friends, to respond in a particular sort of way. So a child would pretend to play the flute, for example, and his friends would dance. Or he would sing a dirge, and the, and the others would weep as though they were at a funeral. And yet the men Jesus' generation presents here were upset because they couldn't bend God's representatives in the way that they wanted to. You see, they played the flute, but John the Baptist and Jesus would not dance to their tune. They sang a dirge about Je- but John the Baptist and Jesus would not weep when they criticized and scorned them for not doing what the Pharisees and the religious elites thought they ought to be doing. You see, Jesus and John the Baptist both had their ears tuned to one voice. It was the voice of the God of heaven. No other noise could distract them from dancing to the heavenly Father's tune. Nobody else was going to throw them off course with a slanderous word or an enticement to something less than what God had called them to do. And so they were upset. 
John the Baptist lived a life that strove to be separate from sin to the point where he altogether avoided bread and wine. That pleases my heart to know that he was the gluten-free prophet. (laughs) And they accused him of having a demon in verse 33. Jesus, on the other hand, came as heaven's representative who humbled himself that he might meet others where they are and take them to where they need to be. So he was often found in the places where John the Baptist wouldn't dare be found, in the presence of sinners. This was Jesus' ministry field. He ate bread and he drank wine, but they still falsely accused him of being a gluttonous man and a drunkard here in this passage. But that didn't bother Jesus. Why? Because he knew why he had come. He knew that he had come to bring heaven down to sinners like you and like me. He knew that wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. And so Jesus was unfazed by those who sought to entice him to dance to a different tune. And I just want to ask those of you who are brothers and sisters in Christ. How tough is it for someone or something else to throw you off course? When it comes to your walk with Christ. Are there tunes that are leading you off course right now? Are you facing temptations of fleeting sin? Are you facing temptation toward illicit relationships? Are you tempted to pursue a dishonest deal? Are you wooed into a clique of slanderers? Is some prospect of wealth or popularity tugging at your tails and calling you to depart from your course? I just want to say this. Dance to a different tune. Get your life in tune with the God who holds your eternity. Do what He calls you to do and stay focused in spite of the noise. And I close with a call. To all of those who may be asking this question that we began with back when we started. Is this the one I've been waiting for? Well, know this, my friends. God has come close to you. God, the Son, came in flesh to be amongst the sinners and the tax collectors. He came to eat and to drink with those that the religious elites of their day would have nothing to do with. And God has shown that ultimately His heart is for you. The one who we have been waiting for has come for you. He has come to win you. He has come to show God's love for you. He has come because He yearns for you to share eternity with Him. And he's paid every price. He's checked off every box. So that all you've got to do is turn from your sin, come to him by faith, and be covered with his righteousness. That, my friends, is the hope of the gospel. That Christ died the death we deserve to die as he was mocked, as he was abused, as he was spat upon, as he was scorned on the cross of Calvary. He faced the penalty we deserved, dying in death, laid in a grave. But three days later, my friends, God showed that his one had come. 
God showed that his expected one was here as he arose him from the dead to live and reign forevermore. And now all we are called to do is come by faith to him and receive his promised blessing. My friends, the one we've been waiting for has come for you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this glorious gospel. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ came for the unpleasant. Christ redeemed those who were so unworthy of it all. And Father, this is a hope for every heart in this place. So let us, O Lord, not reject this wonderful truth that the one we have been waiting for has come. God, let every heart prepare room for Christ to be Lord of all. If there are decisions you are calling individuals to make in these moments, if there are things that we are doing that are bending in the wrong direction, Lord, bend us in the right direction. Help us, O Lord, to align with your paths. Maybe there's a prayer that needs to be prayed. Maybe there's a a statement that needs to be made. Maybe there's someone, O Lord, who just needs a friend to help in a struggle, someone to pray with, someone who can guide them into this message of eternal life. Lord, whatever the need may be, as we close in these final moments, you do what only you can do by the power of your Spirit and draw all men to yourself. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.